KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the Supreme Court next term will take up a case that could make Trump's fake electors scheme the law of the land. That means that winning majorities in state legislatures in the swing states is the key to preserving democracy in 2024. Daniel Squadron will explain. He's the co-founder and executive director of The States Project. Also, John Nichols will comment on the Wisconsin Senate race, Mandela Barnes versus the horrible Ron Johnson, and the governor race there, where it's essential that Tony Evers be reelected. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Joe Biden announced yesterday, Wednesday, that he is canceling $10,000 in student loan debt for Americans earning $125,000 or less per year. And he's extending a pause on payments for all borrowers until December 31st. We're told this will offer at least some level of debt relief for about 43 million Americans. Americans owe $1.6 trillion for federal student loans, which is more than they owe on car loans, credit cards, or any consumer debt, aside from mortgages. $10,000 is really the low number of what he could have done. Is it enough? Is it enough to create enthusiasm among young people to vote Democratic in November? Well, I think there's a third component, that uh, the government will forgive $20,000 uh, dollars of, of uh, federal loans uh, to Pell Grant recipients. Yes. So that's a smaller subset. Uh, is it enough? Well, it's a good start, is what I would say. And it's not enough, but it does make a real difference, particularly to students who only took out loans, let's say, for two-year colleges, uh, which are not nearly as costly as loans that are taken out for a four-year, much less grad school. Uh, Obviously, there was a whole panoply, a whole wide range of Democratic uh, opinion on this. Uh, NAACP wanted uh, 50,000. Bernie and Elizabeth Warren wanted to retire the the whole thing. Uh, I, I think the main reluctance to go higher in the White House was fear of being uh, attacked by Republicans for adding to inflation. Uh, I think that was the limiting factor. You know, depending on, to a degree, what happens in the November elections, uh, but even regardless of the November elections, this is obviously something the Biden administration, since it's an executive action, can revisit in, uh, ni- in uh, 2023 and 2024. So uh, I don't think this is the last word. And I don't think that the uh, many groups and progressives who have been pushing for more think it's the last word either. This is what's done is done, but there's still more uh, to be done. Will this affect the youth vote? Well, you know, one thing we have seen, particularly in uh, elections that have been held since the court revoked Roe v. Wade in June, is that young voters were already turning out to the polls in heavy numbers before Biden said anything about this. Uh, And, uh, you know, he has passed the most, or the Democratic Congress has passed 
the most consequential legislation to deal with the climate crisis that's ever been passed before. So, you know, I think youth turnout will still, I mean, could it have been higher if the amount retired had been higher? Well, yeah, but I don't know that, that by that much. I think the, the 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 main issue driving youth turnout, particularly among young women, uh, is the uh, revocation of abortion rights. Yeah. We had some uh, primary uh, elections on Tuesday, notably in New York and in Florida. What significant results did you find there? Well, all kinds of results. In terms of what effect the uh, uh, abortion revocation is having on elections, there was one real key election in a special election in a district that will no longer exist after December 31st due to redistricting. But in this district, which Joe Biden had carried by uh, about one and a half percent, Republicans were widely expected to win. This is, you know, uh, a party out of power wins the, these kinds of elections. It's a swing district. Uh, the Republicans should do uh, better than Trump in that district. Didn't happen. The Democrat campaigned mainly on abortion rights. And this guy is a war veteran who said he def was defending freedom when he was over in Iraq. And uh, part of defending freedom is defending a woman's uh, right to choose. Uh, and he won 52 to 48, uh, which added to the uh, referendum in Kansas suggests that uh, the Democratic base, including young people, very much including women, is turning out at record levels because of, uh, of that decision. And uh, this augurs very well for the Democrats, not only increasing their support in the Senate, but even having a chance to hold the House. That district was in New York. Uh, what about Florida? Anything significant in Florida that you found? Well, Charlie Crist won the Democratic primary for governor. Uh, oddly enough, Charlie Crist has already been governor of Florida when he was a Republican. Now yeah, let me just Democrat. say one thing about that. He's yeah. taken a lot of heat for having been a Republican of the the usual kind. My view is that it's good when Republicans become Democrats. We wish more of them would, would do it. So as far as that goes, I do not hold this against them. He is a centrist Democrat, not a progressive. Well, that's who, you know, you would assume that that would make him a little stronger with some key constituencies in Florida. Florida is a state, by the way, where uh, all the polling uh, suggests it's clearly a pro-choice state, and I would expect that to come into play there as well. Although Ron DeSantis uh, has really tried to stay away from the abortion issue after he signed a law uh, uh, forbidding it after 15 weeks. There's obviously a whole lot of Republicans and others in the state who want it to go down to six weeks or no weeks, uh, but DeSantis' political survival instincts have told him he probably shouldn't go there unless he's reelected and then to go to the Republican appeal to the Republican base running for president. Voila, you know, <laughs> yes, zero weeks would sound great. So right. we'll see where that goes. There was also one really interesting and heartening uh, Democratic primary uh, in Florida uh, in an open seat in Orlando that is a heavily Democratic seat. So whoever won that primary is a, a, a lock on uh, on winning the, uh, the general election in November. There were a lot of people in that race, uh, including some former members of Congress, 
the uh, Working Families Party and, uh, and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren endorsed a 25-year-old uh, son of Cuban immigrants named, uh, his last name was Frost, I think it's Matthew Frost. Uh, Matthew Frost had been an organizer of the uh, anti-gun coalition that uh, arose out of the Parkland uh, uh, massacre in Florida. It was a leader of that. As I said, he's 25 years old. He's charismatic as all get out. And he will now be the first Gen Zer uh, to serve in Congress. So that was, I think, a really interesting and, and heartening result. And there's a in California, there's a new poll out Wednesday that shows that about 70% of California voters support an amendment to add abortion rights to the protected rights in the Constitution. This is big. Uh, a lot of people. How much do you think it will help the Democrats flip the, those last few Republican congressional seats, especially in Southern California? There's there's uh, at least three of them. There's the only Republican left in L.A. County is up up in Lancaster and Palmdale and Santa Clarita. This guy, Mike Garcia, who recently said the Mar-a-Lago raid was, quote, literally tyranny of a majority that is acting more like a third Reich than they are the United States, close quote. Do you think that will help him win against Christy Smith in this redrawn district where Democrats now have a 12-point registration advantage? Uh, the short answer is no. By the way, I, I always look at the National Weather page in the Washington Post <laughs> okay. every morning, and the hottest place in America yesterday, or not yesterday, it is Tuesday, was Lancaster, California <laughs> okay. at 108. And I, I think that was the earth itself trembling <laughs> at the idiocy of Mike Garcia. It just sent up heat waves uh, in, uh, in, in, in protest. But I, I think the California poll out today, the uh, Berkeley IGS, whatever it is, poll, uh, had California pegged at uh, 71% for the constitutional amendment uh, to uh, to put in abortion rights in the state constitution. That that struck me because the invaluable uh, poll analyst uh, and pollster at the New York Times, Nate Cohen, had produced a map of how he thought every state level of support for constitutional enshrinement of abortion would go, and he set California at seventy-one percent. So wow, wow! And this was this was three weeks ago. So points uh, for Nate Cohn. Yeah. And uh, uh, by the way, the there's uh, official California Republican Party specifically came out uh, on Monday against uh, that ballot measure. I think it's ballot measure one, uh, referendum to uh, give constitutional status to abortion rights. Uh, I think this is a problem not just for Mike Garcia and for the two Republican members of Congress in Orange County. I think it's a problem for for more Republicans than that, uh, possibly for, uh, what's his name, Caldwell in the Inland Empire and uh, even uh, David Valadao in the San Joaquin Valley. I think this is going to bite the Republicans. So far, it has bitten them harder than anyone could have anticipated. I don't think that's going away. Let me talk specifically about Orange County, where there are two newly recently elected one term Asian American Republican women, both of whom are running in redrawn districts. Actually, both are Korean American. There's young Kim. Her She's got a new district 
Yorba Linda to Chino Hills, sort of the corner of Orange County, LA County and San Bernardino County. Uh, she is being challenged by a Democratic Dr. Asif Mahmood, who's a born in Pakistan. This is a place where Republicans have a 5% registration advantage, but nearly a quarter of the district's voters have no registered party affiliation. Right now, the Cook Political Report rates it likely Republican. Then the second woman Korean-American incumbent is Michelle Steele. Her district has been moved over to the Orange County coastline. She's running against a Democrat named Jay Chen, who's a lieutenant commander in the Navy Reserve. She's the one who beat Harley Ruda. Uh, but the new district, Democrats have a slim registration advantage of 5%. This one is rated lean Republican. And then, of course, there's Katie Porter is up for re-election in a slightly redrawn district where, where the Democrat advantage is only 1%. Uh, that district is rated lean Democratic. Of course, she has huge amount of national support for Katie Porter. How many of these are seriously uh, uh, Democratic districts uh, after November? Well, certainly Katie Porter's, certainly uh, Michelle Steele's, I think, uh, the, the coastal district. Uh, I think the other district is very much in play. And I think given, you know, the, uh, the voting we have seen uh, thus far since the court revoked uh, Roe, uh, I think uh, that uh, that district as well, uh, up by uh, San Bernardino County, is in play. And I, as I said, I think there are other districts in California that are also in play. This, you know, I mean, the Republicans have really put themselves in, in, in an awkward position uh, in a state where conservatism has distinctly libertarian roots, and it still does in, in a number of uh, uh, pockets of California, and Orange County is one of those pockets. So I, I would not uh, assume that uh, you know the Republicans are going to have an easy ride, except in their most strongly held districts. And now I want to talk about the the political fallout from the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago. Before this, Trump seemed to be fading. A majority of Republicans were saying they'd rather have someone else as their candidate, and there were candidates, uh, notably Ron DeSantis, who seemed to be stepping up to this. Uh, po possibility. But the main res political result of the FBI raid is to tremendously strengthen Trump. He's raised a huge amount of money, and uh, it's, it's increased the chances that he will announce he's running for re-election before the midterms, mostly as a legal strategy. His lawyers tell him it will be harder for Merrick Garland to indict and prosecute a presidential candidate especially for violating the Espionage Act. So he's planning to run not only on the big lie, but also on the argument that he is fighting a political establishment which has turned the, the FBI into a political uh, weapon. Now, we have already talked in the past about, uh, I think it was Kuttner, who, Robert Kuttner at the Prospect, who argued, what, a month ago, that the, a good thing for the Democrats would be if Trump entered the race. Now that seems more likely. On the other hand, Trump is the most dangerous man in America, maybe in the world. What do you think about hoping that Trump does declare soon that he's a candidate? Well, it's a mixed bag. Uh, the one, th you know, the, the, the only people rallying to Trump uh, are the Republican base. Now, if that means 
There is higher Republican-based turnout in the November elections. That is not good for the Democrats. But I'm inclined to think, given that Democrats and the Democratic base and young people are already uh, disproportionately mobilized, uh, that uh, Trump's reemergence will only uh, bolster Democratic turnout as well. Uh, you know, and I, I am sure the pragmatists in the Republican Party, uh, the Mitch McConnells, think that if Trump actually were the presidential uh, candidate in 2024, that would be terrible for the Republican Party. Because even at the lowest point in Joe Biden's polling, Joe Biden has always beaten Donald Trump. And I presume other Democrats uh, would uh, also beat Donald Trump. Well, you're right that Mitch McConnell is one of the few Republicans who has not publicly spoken out in defense of Donald Trump, has not criticized the FBI. Of course, the most notable one uh, is Mike Pence, the only presidential, you know, what should we say, contender on the Republican side who's called on Republicans to stop attacking the FBI and to uh, support support the local police, basically. Um, the other one, of course, is Liz Cheney, who said there's, she found no political motivation behind the FBI search of, of Mar-a-Lago. But it's pretty clear that if, if Trump is a candidate, that he will pressure all the other Republican candidates to declare that if they win, they will end the prosecution of Trump and they will instead pursue the Democrats who have, who have gone after Trump. And, and probably they'll all agree to do that, don't you think? Well, uh, based on the number of, of her congressional colleagues that have flocked to Liz Cheney's banner, <laughs> I would say that, yes, they will all go ahead and do that. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure as always, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Remember Trump's fake electors scheme? It was the idea behind the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Now the Supreme Court has agreed to take up a case that could make it the law of the land. For comment, we turn to Daniel Squadron. He's co-founder and executive director of The States Project, which focuses on winning majorities in state legislatures. He's also a former New York State Senator. We reached him today in New York City. Daniel Squadron, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, the fake elector scheme, just in case people have forgotten, was the idea that when it came time to count the electoral votes, state legislatures could send Congress their own slates of electors that reversed the choice of their state's voters. So in a state like Arizona or Wisconsin, which did send fake electors, and where Biden won a majority of votes, the state legislature, under the theory, could declare Trump the winner of that state, and the Electoral College, with the vice president presiding, would have to count the electors sent by the state legislatures, which would have made Trump, of course, the winner. That was the theory. Pence, of course, refused to go along with it, which is why the insurrectionists were chanting, hang Mike Pence. 
The case the Supreme Court has agreed to hear is not directly about the fake elector scheme. It's about gerrymandering. But the implications are broad and, and frightening. Tell us about the case Moore versus Harper and the independent state legislature doctrine and gerrymandering in North Carolina. Well, I would say if you thought that the Supreme Court did quite a business to Roe v. Wade this term, just wait to see what Moore v. Harper does to free and fair presidential elections next term. Like many things related to state legislatures, uh, there can sometimes be a tendency to say, oh, well, this is a single discrete instance where state legislatures matter, in this case, on gerrymandering, which was also much the call to arms of 2020. But of course, what we find again and again is state legislatures are critical to many issues. In fact, as we're seeing, to the very existence of the democracy. What this case could do is it could validate the absolutely bizarre and ridiculous idea that state legislatures have a plenary or absolute power over who gets their electoral votes. Ready for this? Before, during, or after election day. That nullification of the votes is somehow a power that was given to the state legislatures in Article 2 of the Constitution. By the way, people hear state legislatures and assume, well, that's wild, but you must mean with the sign-off of the governor, with the sign-off of the state Supreme Court, with the sign-off of the Secretary of State. But oh no, state legislatures means state legislatures. And unlike governors, secretaries of state, and courts, in every swing state in America, the state legislature is controlled by a unified Republican majority that has expressed sympathy or support for the big lie. So the case is about gerrymandering, but people fear that the gerrymandering case, North Carolina has extreme Republican gerrymandering, could open the door to making, as you have said, Trump's fake elector scheme legal. What, what exactly would the Supreme Court have to do to make that happen? Well, the Supreme Court would have to uh, do essentially what we saw it do this year in the Mississippi case, which is use the opportunity to remake law and erase a right. It erased the rights around reproductive health and abortion. It could erase the effective right that people have had to vote for president. And here's how. It would say that state legislative action when it comes to elections is unreviewable by state courts. It cannot have rulemaking or things to enact it by election administrators, secretaries of state, and others. And it would have to go one step farther to say that that power is particularly potent when it comes to presidential electors because of Article 2 of the Constitution, which is where presidential electors are. The other components of this are under Article 1. And would need to rely on, ready for this deep cut, the Rehnquist decision or concurrence in Bush v. Gore. Oh. So the Rehnquist piece there said two things. It used that term plenary. State legislatures have a plenary power. But it also said something else. Remember, that stopped the count. In essence, the reasoning was 
the risk of disenfranchising a few Floridians with hanging chads was not as great a risk as all Floridians being disenfranchised because the state didn't send electors early enough for Congress to be required to count them. So fast forward two and a half years, imagine a world in which folks are fomenting distrust of the election before it occurs, in which there's a major movement that believes the 2020 election was stolen. And by the way, a movement on the left and among progressives who are rightfully concerned about anti-voter laws. Everyone goes into the election queued up and suspicious. Then let's imagine that Steve Bannon or someone else was investing enormous amounts of money and political capital in politicizing election administration, both elected ones and appointed ones, who can't steal the election on their own, but they can create chaos and delays. If you remember what Catherine Harris did as the election administrator in Florida, let's just call that an opening act. And then in that environment, there is the so-called risk that the state will not have a clear determination of its electors before they have to send them to Congress. Well, with this power, that would create a false fig leaf to roll in and nullify the vote, ignore the count, and instead throw the election to their favored candidate, likely Donald Trump. So the Supreme Court will hear arguments this fall about the North Carolina gerrymandering case where the Republicans in the state are arguing that the congressional districts created by the state legislature are not reviewable by any any court. That's going to be argued this fall. So whatever the Supreme Court says won't affect the midterms coming up in four months. When would this decision take effect? Well, it would be decided after the midterm sometime next spring, presumably. So it would be active. And this is really chilling for the 2024 presidential election and the run up to it. How many justices at the Supreme Court right now seem to be in favor of the Republican arguments in this case? Oh, well, this is great news. Only three of them have uh, clearly signaled that they are for this for sure. Alito, Gorsuch and uh, Thomas. Now, Kavanaugh has come pretty close to signaling it. Amy Coney Barrett has not signaled one way or the other. So if you are confident that Amy Coney Barrett will stand up to the uh, conservative movement on this and protect the democracy, stop listening now. (laughs) If the Supreme Court accepted this doctrine, in order for a state legislature to create its own slate of electors that would reverse the majority vote, they would need to control both houses of a state's legislature. And you said this a minute ago, but I just want to go back to that. How many of the swing states of 2020 had Republican control of both houses of their state legislature? Republicans control both houses of every swing state legislature in the country. All of them? All of them. Going into the midterms this fall, how firm is unified Republican control of legislatures in the swing states? Let's start with Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Well, in those three states, uh, it is an uphill battle, but it is closer than people could imagine when they've heard that this is going to be a tough year. In Arizona, you're talking about one seat in each chamber to get to a tie. Uh, That means couple of thousand votes or fewer, uh, even in a tough year that need to be flipped. Michigan, 
you have three seats in each chamber and new and fairer districts than you had in 2020. So the distance is, in fact, two seats today because of a special election uh, in one of the chambers. So you're talking about a better landscape, even if it is a if it does, in fact, end up being a tougher year. Pennsylvania is a bit farther off, especially in the Senate, but even in the House. It's a double digit number of seats. But here's an interesting quirk about Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, whoever's elected in 2024 to the legislature will take office before presidential electors get sent to Washington, D.C. So you get two bites at the apple in Pennsylvania to try to have a legislature that will respect the vote. It's a tough road, but they also have fairer districts. They've got some great candidates. And so picking up seats in Pennsylvania is really possible this year ahead of 2024. Of course, the flip of that is also true. <laughs> Who's that? That's a dog. He seems to find this especially painful, this, this part of it. She's uh, a very wise dog. <laughs> the flip is also true. The flip of that is also true, which is in Arizona and Michigan, whoever's elected this November, before the Supreme Court decides, will have the power to act on that decision. So if people start noticing this and believing it and acting on it after the court decides, it will simply be too late. Okay. Flipping just one branch of the state legislature in a few swing states could prevent Republicans from stealing the 2024 election. But people who want to help are going to have a hard time find, finding out exactly who are the candidates with the best chances of flipping those key seats in those key state legislatures. This is where the states project can help. That is why we are set up uh, at the States Project. We know that it is very hard to get involved in state legislative elections in strategic ways where you know your involvement will have an impact. And uh, we know that for many people, convincing their friends and family of this, as true as it is, requires some partnership and tools and content. So the States Project gives people the ability to become significant forces to change the outcomes in these states by starting giving circles. These are groups of people started by a couple of friends or um, a, an existing group who gathers, and they go out to their networks and try to raise dollars to impact a particular state. Along the way, they become experts on that state or others. They um, learn about other kinds of opportunities to have an impact in that state, volunteering or otherwise. And in the state legislative context, these giving circles end up being some of the most significant sources of dollars for these campaigns, period. Because even, even uh, as the importance of state legislatures increases in people's minds, the cost of these campaigns is still a fraction what a congressional district or a statewide race would be. So, you know, people no longer feel like observers to the destruction of the democracy. They're able to gather and do this work and become a consistent force for these outcomes. So Democratic victories in state legislatures in swing states could prevent the creation 
of slates of fake electors in 2024, they could also do some other things like expanding abortion rights. Absolutely. In fact, I'd like your listeners to just do a brief mental exercise. Think about the issue that causes them to listen to this podcast. There's something they care about. Now, it might be your uh, jokes, but probably there's an issue they care about as well. It is almost certain that that issue is one where state legislatures have done more damage or good over the last decade than Congress has. Talk about reproductive rights. How about gun safety? How about jobs, both during and in the wake of COVID? How about healthcare, Medicaid expansion, which some of these states still haven't done? How about schools and uh, whether there are public schools that educate kids, their very existence? Infrastructure. Anyone care about roads or bridges that don't collapse? <laughs> this is all state legislatures. By the way, there's one other component of state legislatures, too. You know, sometimes they go on to help set the national tone as well. I don't know if your listeners have ever heard of uh, Barack Obama or Chuck Schumer or Stacey Abrams. All of these folks, former state lawmakers, by the way, I don't know if anyone remembers Steve King, who uh, for a time was Congress's leading white nationalist. And, uh, that, that job has been replaced. He was a former state lawmaker. Ken Cuccinelli, who uh, led the anti-immigration campaigns for the Trump administration, state lawmaker. This is where government is happening. This is where the future is being laid. And uh, it is also where we'll determine whether free and fair presidential elections are in the past or in the future. The state's project doesn't just raise money for candidates with the best chances of flipping state legislatures. You have also had some experience about how to run a good campaign, which some of our candidates really need to find out about. Uh, it is not as easy to run a state legislative campaign as some may imagine. And I would say it's maybe not as complicated as some others would. There are some fundamentals that just experience over time, running races, seeing races, following research and evidence and studies that happen that make uh, campaigns more effective. Here's one from the three-dimensional chess category. The more voters who a candidate meets and has a meaningful interaction with, the more likely the candidate is to win those voters. That is actually lost in a lot of campaigns through the... So through the States Project, working with these campaigns, we're able to uh, share uh, best practices and a philosophy on how best to run and win campaigns that, you know, a lot of state legislative candidates are their first in their first race. A lot of state legislative campaign staff are in their first race. These people work incredibly hard. They are in it because they believe in government at this level. To ask them in politics where the winds can start to blow pretty hard and it can be hard to break through and understand what makes sense is a really important thing that the States Project has been able to do that I'm really proud of. Now, when you work with candidates on best practices, do you tell them that TV ads are the secret of success in politics? <laughs> we don't, or or direct, you know, that, that 35th piece of mail is really likely to convince somebody. It is really about getting known by the voters in your district and getting to know that. 
to the extent the candidate can do that themselves, to the extent the candidate has supporters and volunteers and people who live in the district who can do that, to the extent there's campaign staff and field staff that can do that. You know, this is not the West Wing. It is local politics, representative, constituent-based politics, and reminding folks of that is often the highest value we can bring. And my other pet peeve is likely voters. When I started being interested in politics, the secret was find the people who vote every time and make sure they vote again for you. Stacey Abrams has been working for the last decade to change the whole concept of the likely voter. And I think the state's project has something to do with that. And you know, what we saw in 2020 is that in this environment, who is in the electorate and why they're there is changing. Now, I think it's important to acknowledge that's not always to the benefit of a candidate that you or I might agree with. It is a different world in terms of who is voting. That cuts both ways in terms of who you should be talking to, meaning there might be a new voter who is motivated by something they're seeing in the national scene that you and I would absolutely disagree with. But locally, they might very well be interested in someone who's focused on uh, what's happening in parks in their neighborhood. And so it's really important to remember that that is a dynamic and ever-changing group of folks, not necessarily just because we can motivate people to get up off the couch who would never have before as any single candidate, but because politics is changing so quickly and dramatically that we need to understand that who is going to be in the electorate from cycle to cycle is also shifting. And I have one other pet peeve. Get out the vote campaigns before election day. When I got started in this, the idea was you put all of your energy into like the last week of the campaign to make sure everybody votes. We now think that voter participation is a longer term project than get out the vote on election day. There's no question about that. And it's about engagement. This is actually an important piece of when you look at the stage project work, you look at some of the other great work that's happening and not mixing them up. We're believers that you need to both be seeding the field and harvesting when the time is ripe. And that, to be honest, those are two different strategies. Campaigns are not particularly well suited to changing the electorate. Efforts that change the electorate over time tend not to be as focused on exactly what's needed with any electorate in any year to win. The idea that we sometimes, through a pendulum, think it's just one or just the other, or one is more inspiring and one is more cynical, you have to do it all. That's the lesson of the right. The right built a constituency around extreme ideas that were very unpopular. And they also ran campaigns that met the electorate in any election where it was. So how can listeners find out more about the States Project? Uh, well, they should visit our website, which is statesproject.org, statesproject.org, and they can learn just more about states, why states matter, what states we're working in, or they can go and start a giving circle uh, or learn more about it. Here's what I would say. State legislatures 
are like 50 mini Congresses. If you're interested in what's happening at the national political level, because of its impact on our lives, state legislatures are every bit as important. If you're interested because you're interested in politics and what's happening in politics and where the country is going, state legislatures are the best sign. If you're interested in having an impact so that you don't just listen to this podcast and then tear your hair out about how scary things are, because they are, the state's project is a way where you can have a bigger impact than you ever imagined. So one last thing, your whole argument is that state legislatures are extremely important. You were a state senator in the New York State Legislature. You weren't defeated, you resigned. Why? Can you imagine leaving the state legislature to work on more state legislatures? <laughs> a deeper conversation here at the end. But I would say on a more serious note, I represented uh, a district uh, in lower Manhattan and parts of Brooklyn, where I still live for almost a decade. Uh, it was an unbelievable and unique honor to work for constituents. It's one of the only jobs, maybe the only job on earth where your bosses are a bunch of people with less structural power than you have. And in 2016 and 2017, as with many people, I felt that there was a danger creeping in this country and that the focus and energy, which was so much, it's hard to remember now, so much on Trump as a single unique threat and figure was missing the point. I had seen through my time at state legislatures, through my work in politics otherwise, that this was a place where the far right, the far extreme right, had invested and built power, even in places like New York, while those who shared a worldview that I had about a healthy, sustainable, and prosperous future had basically ignored. And there was this moment where regular people were ready to get involved. So while I was still in office, almost inadvertently, I helped uh, get the first giving circle started. And I met uh, the co-founder of the States Project, my co-founder, Adam Pritzker, who also believed that this moment was unique and that without a new effort focused on states and outcomes, we would miss the chance to save the country. And so I resigned office midterm and have been at it now for five years, still working with that original giving circle, still uh, uh, partnered with uh, Adam and um, humbled by how high the stakes are, but very excited by what we've been able to build so far. Daniel Squadron is co-founder and executive director of the States Project, online at statesproject.org, which focuses on winning majorities in state legislatures. Daniel, thanks for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now I'd like to talk about politics in Wisconsin, a key swing state in 2022 and coming up in 2024. For that, we turn to John Nichols, our man in Madison. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. John, welcome back. It is an honor to be with you, my friend. 
in Wisconsin that Democrats, as you have told us, united and uh, support all supported Mandela Barnes as the Senate candidate to challenge the horrible Ron Johnson. How's Mandela Barnes doing? Pretty good, John Wiener. We had a poll come out last week in Wisconsin, and it's the, the kind of gold standard poll. It's the Marquette University Law School poll that, that pretty much everybody in Wisconsin accepts is a good poll. Doesn't mean it always gets everything right, but it's a solid poll. And amazingly enough, after the, the Republican and Democratic primaries, it put Mandela Barnes up seven points over Ron Johnson outside the margin of error uh, with a majority. Mandela Barnes at 51% and leading overwhelmingly among Democrats, doing exceptionally well for a, in a race like this among independents. Uh, and so it's looking like Mandela Barnes is a very credible challenger to Ron Johnson. I still think the race is going to get ugly. It's going to be mean. There's going to be immense amounts of money. Uh, even Republicans who know that Ron Johnson is in complete embarrassment are still going to pump money into him because he's going to be critical to holding to them having any chance of gaining control of the Senate. Right. And so it's, it's such an important battle. But Mandela Barnes is looking very strong. And I'll give you one tidbit that I think you'll appreciate. Um, it, the, you know, there's a very crowded Democratic primary. And Mandela Barnes' opponents spent the better part of $25 million trying to beat him. Uh, they were unsuccessful, and many of them dropped out. But he still had several active opponents when uh, primary day came on August 9th. And he won about 80% of the vote. So it just overwhelmingly swept rural areas, actually did better in some rural areas than in some urban areas. So a very, very good finish for him. But over on the Republican side, nobody was paying attention to the Republican primary. Who cared, right? Ron Johnson, he's the guy. But he did have an unknown opponent who did so small a campaign that this guy didn't file a campaign finance report, didn't have ads on TV, didn't have radio ads, wasn't interviewed by the media, was often not even mentioned. Well, the unknown candidate against uh, Ron Johnson got 110,000 votes, over 16% of the vote. Wow. So uh, there are some Republicans who, who may not be all that impressed with uh, Ron Johnson. And if Mandela Barnes runs his campaign right, which is to uh, you know, maximize progressive turnout, Mandela Barnes is a progressive, to reach out in the ways that he always has to rural areas and to give those democracy-supporting Republicans a reason to cross over at least this once and vote to get rid of Ron Johnson, I think his chances are looking remarkably good. And uh, how about uh, the incumbent Democratic governor, Tony Evers? That poll showed him ahead, but not by as much as Mandela Barnes is ahead. Yeah, it, it, it's a closer result, but I think that's reasonably easy to explain. And, and certainly it's a part of why Mandela Barnes came out so well in the poll. Mandela Barnes had just won a primary, right, and had all the, the drama of a primary, even though at the end it had gone very much in his favor. He had ads up on TV, a lot of profile. Um, the guy who's running against Tony Evers, a guy named Tim Michaels, had just won his primary and had had a massive $12 million TV ad campaign and stuff. So my sense is that, you know, you get this primary bump and uh, obviously it helped Barnes. It also helped the Republican running against Evers to some extent, but still Evers maintained his lead. 
And um, it was a quirky poll in that regard, too, because a lot of people, about 7% said they were supporting a, a independent candidate who nobody's heard of. And so my mm-hmm. sense is that there are some people parking, that that sort of was an, another way of saying undecided. Um, bottom line is that I think that Tony Evers uh, probably, again, I won't say this absolutely, but probably won the governor's race on the day that the Dobbs decision came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, because Wisconsin is an overwhelmingly pro-choice state. In fact, even among Republicans, pro-choice position gets very, very good numbers. And uh, I think that, that Tony Evers is going to run on that. He's going to run very strong on that. And uh, my sense is that like a lot of Democrats in battleground states, that may well be the issue that puts him across the, across the line, maybe even with a decent margin in November. One last thing. It's the KPFK Fund Drive, and we're asking all our listeners to help keep this show, this station, and this network alive and strong in the coming season. Please call us now, 818-985-5735, and pledge whatever you can, 818-985-KPFK. Now we have a few words from John Nichols about the role of independent media in the current political landscape. I know you've always been a huge supporter of alternative media listener-supported radio, especially at Pacifica. So let's talk about that for a minute, why you think KPFK and stations like it are a good thing that deserve support from listeners. Yeah, I don't think they're a good thing that deserves support, John. I think they're a great thing that deserves massive levels <laughs> of, of encouragement. And the reason for that is not merely because I like a lot of the people who are involved and I, and I like the, the, the model in many, many ways. It goes deeper. Uh, 20 years ago, Bob McChesney and I started writing about the decline of media in the United States. And what we recognized is even then, we didn't have enough sources of speak truth to power, uh, progressive, smart journalism, right? And discussion and dialogue. They're just many parts of the country just don't have it. Well, what's happened over the last 20 years is that we've lost a lot of what we have. Our newspapers are dying. Uh, in, in broadcast, we've seen so much uh, homogenation. And uh, there's a lot on the internet, but it's hard to get to. And so having a strong, you know, community-based, independent radio station that speaks truth to power at the local, state, national, and international level, that brings on guests who will offer alternative perspectives, and frankly, that tries to get to some approximation of the truth, as hard as that may be in these times, that's more valuable than it has ever been. Uh, I will just say that they've got to give everything they can. I know people make campaign contributions. I know people you know, give money to a lot of different sources. And I respect that. I want you to continue to do that for what you believe in. But I will tell you, if you don't support this station, and if you don't support it now, you undermine all the other things you believe in. Because having an island of truth and sort of an aggressive search for you know, what we, what we need to know, what we can know, uh, is so valuable today that without it, all the other projects that we're involved in, fighting for democracy, for economic and social and racial justice, to save the planet, to promote peace, all those other things are undermined if we lose this radio station. So give at, at the highest level you can. That's what I, I plead for. But at the bottom line, the most important thing is to support this station and independent media because we need it now more than ever. And you can do that by calling 
5735-818-985 KPFK right now. John Nichols, his terrific new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. John, thanks for talking with us today. John, thanks for everything you do. Great, great host, great station. So, at a time when things are not looking good, when the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade, when Trump-supported candidates are threatening in the midterm elections, when Trump himself is threatening a comeback in two years, when Republican vote suppression and gerrymandering are, make it, are making it harder for millions of people to vote, when peace in the world has never seemed more precarious, now especially we need independent voices like KPFK, sources of news and analysis that you won't find on PBS or CNN or MSNBC. We need KPFK to remain strong and independent in the coming political season. And that's why we need you to call us right now. 818-985-5735. Pledge your support, please, as much as you can. 818 818- 985-KPFK. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.